Good morning, everybody. I know some of you have had a treacherous winter, but here in Scottsdale, Arizona, it has been absolutely blissful winter. Okay, today we have a great show planned for you. We're going to be talking with Dr. Lynn Kinney. She is the author of The Family Coach Method. She is a pediatric psychologist and a family coach here in Scottsdale, Arizona. Lynn has recently collaborated with Wendy Young, and she has a brand new book out. This book is titled Bloom, Helping Children Blossom, and you can all find this book on Amazon. She has advanced fellowship training in forensic psychology and developmental pediatric psychology from Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. She's going to be here sharing some really awesome ideas for all of you from her brand new book. She's a real delight, and you will really enjoy the information she has to share with all of you. So let's get right to it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Smart Choices for a Happier Life, where it's a community of people working together for social good. Let's share love, peace, and let's talk. Here's your host, Pamela Chambers. Well, good morning, uh, Dr. Lynn Kenny. It's so we're so excited to have you here on this uh, podcast, sharing with my audience all that you do. Well, it's my honor. Well, welcome. Now, you are a family coach, so could you share with my audience a little bit about a, what is a family coach? Sure. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a pediatric psychologist who, all around maybe 2003, found that. Some families really benefited from work in their homes as opposed to in the office. And so I started going into families' homes, and the family coach actually came out of a video series that AOL did way back in 2006. And they're actually the ones who used the term the family coach before I ever used it. I just thought of myself as Lynn. And then in 2009, I wrote The Family Coach Method. A a wonderful pediatrician who I adore, Ron Fischler, had said, Lynn, clearly you're not going to work forever. Will you write down what you do when you go into these people's homes so other people can do it as well? And that's how the whole Family Coach Method came to be. Wow, and you also got a new book out, right? Yeah, Wendy Young and I wrote a very colorful digital book. People kept saying to us... um, you know, we buy into the, we don't want to punish our kids, but we're really not sure what else to say and do. So Wendy Young and I took 12 real questions from people who had sent them up to us on Facebook and on Twitter, and we gave the parents and teachers the language we would use to build skill sets instead of punishing children about ages 3 to 10. Wow, that'll be great because I don't know why, but for some reason in our culture, we feel we have to inflict pain for children to get it. Yeah, we were just talking about this yesterday. Um, You know, the challenge is that we believe that we can consequence or punish children into new behaviors, but really we can't. We can only teach them into new behaviors. So I think as parents, we sometimes feel like, especially if other people are watching, we need to show our power over our children by telling them to go to timeout or sometimes, you know, getting angry or giving them a consequence. But really... About 90% of the time when a child misbehaves, it's a skill deficit. It's usually not willful noncompliance. It's usually that they don't have the words or actions to behave as expected. Wow. Yeah, sometimes they don't have the maturation. Ages can be different. That's absolutely true. I mean, the other, the other interesting thing, I was somewhere, I was, at a, I was visiting colleges with my kids, 
And I was um, at a college and a family was like doing a little photo shoot. And there was a little boy there. He was about four years old and all the adults were milling around and they were having all these varieties of pictures. And the mother kept saying, you know, Joey, and she was a loving mother. She just didn't know. She was like, Joey, wait over there. Joey, wait over there. Well, 20 minutes later, Joey, intelligent Joey was involved in another activity and he was very happily involved in it. You know, maybe he was climbing up something and now the mother wanted him because of the adult needs. And of course he fell apart and had a tantrum. And that's just so common in our environment. If we don't set kids up for success and kind of, you know, meet their developmental, cognitive, and social needs, then they end up misbehaving. But really, all they were trying to do was occupy themselves. So that book that you wrote, does it, it gives the parents the tools to be able to do that? Yeah, it's called Bloom. So the first book, The Family Coach Method, tells parents how, parents how to create a culture of clear expectations in which children can be skillful. And then the second book, which is called Bloom, Helping Children Blossom, is basically all about the fact that our children want to do well, and we can guide them with empathy and new words and thoughts and feelings and kind of the, the gift of skills. We kind of are the brain for our child until they have the skill sets. And Bloom goes through all these examples, real-life examples, with the actual words you would use in order to um, avoid uh, criticism, shaming, and punishment. Oh, wow. I like it. I love the title, too. It's a pretty title. Now, you said you are a mother, correct? Yes. Oh, I can't believe it. My children are 13 and 15, and you know how fast they grow. Yes, I do. I have grown children and then another set smaller. They're age 10 twins. But I think being a parent is really important, too, because it does add that um, level of experience that is very helpful, I think. Well, I have fun when I do this talk, and I, and I can ask you if you don't mind saying, when I do this talk, I say to people who are generally parents in the audiences, but often teachers and clinicians, I say, you know, what's the one thing you learned after your children that you didn't know before your children? And a lot of times the audience says, I was much more judgmental. Ooh. You know, I thought my kid will never do that. That would never happen in our family. And what you realize is that we're all doing our very best. And we're, you know, we're all trying to use the skill sets that we have. And nobody, generally, people don't mean harm. But we need to live in a world where the community and other family members are supportive and encouraging and not just judgmental. Oh, yes, because I can remember my grandparents at times would be sitting there. He'd be watching some kids over there. Boy, those parents don't know how to control those kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we used to think it was all about control. And, you know, what it's, what it, and that's, it's a different era now. What it's now about is skill sets. Do you have the language to succeed? Do you have the, can you read the social cues to succeed? Things like that. We, we can't control and manage children into being healthy. We have to kind of parent them and teach them into being healthy. Yeah, now you use the term EF. Could you tell the audience a little bit about what EF is? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that Wendy and I wrote a lot about was kind of using brain-based interventions, um, and EF stands for executive function, and it's a term we hear a lot now, um, but executive function are basically your, they're your cognitive management skills. They're the things that allow you to pay attention, focus, um, they allow you to plan and preview and revise what you've done. 
They help you inhibit your behaviors. You know, when you're really excited and you want to talk, but you know it's not really your turn. <laughs> they keep you sitting in your seat. Your executive functions are, are really important. And when we understand what they are, we can then give the children the words and tools to kind of do as expected um, in a brain-based way. So how do you teach it? Well, you know, the first thing I do is I teach people the domains of executive function. And, and then when I, then we, as an example, um, a terrific mom who I know who's an awesome mom said, you know, the other day my child had um, a fit because he wanted something he couldn't have. And so I sent him to time out. And I heard about Bloom. I haven't bought it yet, but can you give me an example about how you would use Bloom language to appeal to my son's brain instead of always thinking that when he misbehaves, I need to send him to time out? And what I explained from an executive function standpoint is that there is um, a gap between the behavior and the time out. And that gap needs to be filled with new words, new thoughts, and new feelings so that you can behave better. See, behavior is only a choice when you have the skills. So I use her example saying, well, the first thing we do is we empathize. Johnny, I can hear you really want a cupcake, and I understand that, and it's right before dinner. What shall we do? You use questions. You, you appeal to their frontal lobes, which we call the thinker in the family coach method. And then he says, well, you give it to me right now. And then you talk, and you say, you know, you could have it right now, and then, and then you won't be hungry for your dinner. So I've got an idea. How about if we put the cupcake out so that you can see it, but we eat our dinner before we eat the cupcake? At that sort of con it's not negotiating. People think sometimes that it's giving in, but it's not. It's saying to the child, you have a dop dopamine reward pathway, Pam, and it wants immediate reinforcement right now so that you can produce your endorphins and your neurotransmitters. But if I say there's a dopamine highway down over there, in fact, the dopamine highway right now is that cupcake that's sitting on that shelf or that counter, and you'll be able to eat it right after dinner, then we're able to allow the child to shift his cognition to eating dinner and then eating the cupcake without having his caveman explode. Wow, and you're really teaching critical thinking skills in this whole process as well. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I'm writing a talk on play that I'm giving in New Jersey next week, and the, the, the thinking has evolved so much that now I've got three slides. If people can bear, you know, can they bear that much conversation, there's <laughs> going to be executive function skills, which are your frontal lobe skills, limbic skills, and cerebellar skills that help you organize, plan. They kind of help you manage your everyday functions. And then you're absolutely right. There are cognitive skills, and then there are actually thinking skills. I mean, there's all the, it's just amazing. Once you look, Pam, at the whole landscape of skill sets, you realize, how could I ever really punish my kid? There's so much for him to know. Right, and by questioning them and by asking them to figure things out, you're creating the brain to think, you know, to figure things out for themselves. Yeah, so I, I completely agree with you. You are definitely, I say that you're raising thinking children. You know, when you're doing brain-based interventions or you're using Bloom language or whatever theorist you like, you know, Dan Siegel, there's plenty of really good people. Um, when you're using that kind of language with your child, you're saying, I'm not here to dominate you. I'm here to raise you as a healthy being. And healthy beings think things out, they make decisions, they problem solve, and they inhibit their behavior. Wow. And I also heard you when you first started that process, when you gave us that example, 
you really validated the children's initial response. Yeah, you know, I think the role of empathy in the parent-child dialogue has been forgotten. You know, just like I gave an example yesterday where, Pam, when you're hanging out with a kid, and he has been, as an example, over-controlled in school, and you give him a you talk, speak with him with your eyes, you look in his eyes, and you say with your own eyes, oh, golly, I really get this. What you're doing is you're opening up their thinking brain and limiting their defensive brain. But if I go in and I just say, you know, Mrs. Jones told me that you got in trouble at the water fountain the other day, you engage the defensive brain, which once it is, once your limbic brain is firing and feeling defensive, it's hard to think. Oh, yeah, the thinking shuts down. Yeah, we want to come in through the thinking and go, well, I'm confused about that. Help me see it. Help me understand it better. Oh, now I understand why that went on. Is that is that the way you'd like the story to go next time? Because we could rewrite that story if you'd like. Ooh, I like that. Now, how do we know, though, if our children aren't having or having some difficulty with their executive functioning? Well, those are that's a really good question. So... You know, I could pull up the slide so I could read you all the components. So basically, most children have challenges in two domains. That is attention and distractibility and impulsivity. All right? So the answer to, is my child having any behavioral challenge in, a, in addition to executive function, is very simple. It's a four-step process that your, your listeners could write down if they desired. Step one is you write down what's the expected behavior. All right, so the expected behavior, let's pretend it's uh, we'll sit in his seat uh, and take a test. That's step one. What's the expected behavior? Two, can he do it? Can he do it right now, given what he's eaten, given how he slept, given the noise and the lights in the room, given his relationship with the teacher? There are all sorts of variables. Can he do it? If no, teach it. If yes, expect it. So if the answer is yes, he's capable of doing it, then you provide him some structure that says that basically says, you know, Johnny, right now we're going to do X. This is what I'm needing of you. I need confirmation that you're going to Y. It's called containment and boundaries. But most of the time it's a skill deficit. And so you, you have to say things like, um, Johnny, in order to sit in your chair and take this test, I want you to show me what you're going to do with your bottom. Now, where are you going to put your shoulders? How are you going to hold your feet on the floor? How are you planning? Let me see how you're planning on holding your paper with your left hand and writing with your right. All right, terrific. So we're going to take a few minutes. I'm going to start the timer, whatever you do, and uh, let's dive into this test. Oh, Joey, I see you looking around. Let's focus on that test. You, You know, sometimes our expected behaviors, Pam, are too big. Um, You know, like sitting and taking a test, those, of course, are a lot of different skill sets. But just the sitting behavior, teaching the child how to do the sitting behavior is the first step of the process. And usually we don't. We say, here's your test, and then we start to criticize. Joey, you're moving too much. Joey, why are you out of your seat? Joey, go back and sit down at your seat. Joey, you're going to have to leave the room if you're not taking your test. And that's all top-down parenting. That's not brain-based parenting. Brain-based parenting says, this is what you do with your body. This is what you do with your thoughts. This is what you do with your words. And then you end up with positive behavior. Ooh, I like that. And and you also focus in on the sitting, which prevents a lot of distraction. You know, they're, they're thinking about what they should be doing, you know, and you're giving them something to focus on. And so they're less apt to get distracted or be noncompliant, I would think. 
Yeah, you just said a brilliant thing, and that is that and we all, and sometimes I catch myself still, we often focus, we ignore the children until they misbehave, and then we focus on what they shouldn't do. And that's backwards. Mm-hmm. So we have to pay a lot of attention to the children when they are behaving and tell them what they're doing well, because that's what build the brain, builds the brain connections. When you say, I love how you're sitting peacefully in your seat, or I really like how you're using your fidget toy because I know your brain wants to think, then you get more of those behaviors, not just because of the compliment, but because you wire the brain, you connect, you, you know, you build dendrites that connect with other neurons that say, oh, that is a behavior that is liked, expected, and beneficial to my survival. Right. And doesn't it release the, does it release dopamine when they feel like that they're being appreciated, that you like what they're doing? Yes, you get you get wonderful endorphin bursts. You know, when I'm talking to people and they look like they're starting to get bored or tired, I say, give yourself a big smile. Let's say a big smile. It's so funny. Even smiling, you know, releases endorphins. Just getting up out of your chair releases endorphins, you know. Movement. <laughs> yeah, movement. Very, very important. So, Lynn, now, I think, too, it's important for, for parents to pay attention developmentally what children can handle because sometimes I'll go to a restaurant and I'll see these, you know, young children and parents expecting them to sit. And it's just, it's just not in their DNA at that age to sit for very long. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, sometimes, Pam, don't you think about how parenting is so complicated because you almost have to be a silent scientist. Oh, yeah. You know, developmentally what your child's capable of doing across a bunch of domains, language, social skills, motor skills. Then you have to know how the brain's thinking so that you don't raise the defensive brain and you engage the thinker. Then you got to think about attachment and relationship, which is actually where I start because if a parent is paying mindful attention to their child and they're really present, and I don't mean coddling, but I just mean like there. Like if we're out to dinner and I'm too interested in my phone or my husband than I am in my children, I'm setting up the situation for failure. But if I put the phone down and lean forward and look my kids in the eyes and say, you know, whatever, um, you know, how to go with Susan today or how did you enjoy your riding? Exactly. I'm not saying I want to have a relationship with you, but we are not having relationships with most of our children. And then we're getting mad at them for misbehaving. Yeah. How many times are we sitting there doing the dishes? Our child comes up to, to us and starts talking that we continue to do the dishes. I know. And you know what? My daughter talked about that just this morning and it was fascinating to hear her perspective. She said, mom, when I tell you we need to go somewhere, you always, you say yes, but then you keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, maybe I get up 30 seconds later or 60 seconds later and I say, well, what is that experience for you? And she goes, well, to, to me, that means I say we need to go and then you say yes, but you ignore me. And I said, I'm so glad that you said that because my perspective is I was in the middle of a task and you interrupted me and I said, yes, I adore you and I will take care of your needs, but I need to wrap up this task. Ooh, good. Isn't that fascinating? Yes. The difference? I what love if she that. had never been able to say that, you know? It's wonderful that she could just tell you that and articulate it so well. And so she's 15, so obviously she's got a lot of brain skills, but that might be the experience of a little child, too. Like, you know, when a mother is on her computer and she's working for a living and she has a deadline and her three-year-old says, you know, comes up and says, mommy, 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 it's very important for the mother to say, one, I hear you, 
Two, I will meet your needs. And three, this is when it will happen. So now my new behavior with my 15-year-old will be, um, Olivia, I hear that you need to go somewhere, and I will be up in 60 seconds or whatever it is. Maybe I won't be up for 10 minutes, but you know what I mean? Yeah, it's clearing up the expectations for the child, too, so they know that they're being heard. Yes, and yes, exactly. It's saying your needs are important. Uh, now, I can't just jump all the time every time you have a need set. But I hear you. I know that you can't get this need set taken care of by yourself. Like if you're three, you can't make your own sandwich. And I love the time frame part, though. You know, this is when that's going to happen. And then you've got to really do it, of course, right? Exactly. <laughs> got to make sure you don't forget. <laughs> I use that, too, with, you know, couples who are fighting. You know, if you need a break, but tell them you're going to come back and give them how much time you're going to take and when you'll come back. I have this strategy that I'll tell you about related to people fighting, which is so interesting. And a lot of it comes with age and experience, you know. What I say to them now is, and you might you might have fun with this, because you can see the trouble erupting. Like, let's say your session's going really well and they're talking things out, and then you can see the rainstorm developing. And you look at the person who's about to explode the session and you say, I can, I can see that we're about to fall through the trap door of marriage. Ooh. Do we want to do that or do we want to stay above ground? Well, and yeah. If, if we want to stay above ground, then it's time to take a break or it's time to maybe, you know, that you direct more or it's time for you to help them phrase their sentence in a more positive way. Because a lot of people devolve their conversations as they get more emotional. They don't know how to evolve their conversations as they get more emotional. Yes. It's like you said earlier that you put them into a defensive mode mm -hmm. and the thinking shuts down. They go into fight or flight and there's no thinking and things get in trouble when that happens. Mm -hmm. So now a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of couples are divorced. Moms and dads that live in two different homes. How does this work with having two separate homes? Well, I mean, I, I think that step one, and this is hard because when people initially divorce, then they're very much in their limbic brain. They're not in their cognitive brain usually because they're hurting so much. But I think the first step is to try to help the parent be child-centered, like to actually teach them how to take their content somewhere else, like to a therapist or to a good friend, so that they're not raining on their child. You know, the first thing is stop the emotional flood. Gotcha. And then the next thing is, if you can work with the families to create some routine and consistency, because the routine and consistency um, of expectations is what leads to security, mastery, and attachment. Yeah, and if you've got two different homes going on, it's nice to be able to share with each other, you know, what do you have as bedtime, what's maybe a routine, so we can carry it out in both homes. And what I'm about to say probably is not very popular, but I, now reflectively, I think it's true. And that is that when we divorce and we get into our separate homes, I think we move back a little bit to adolescence ourselves. And we're really happy to be running our house like we want to and not being told what to do. But the problem is that then the child has two different lifestyles. And that's not beneficial for a kid. Yeah. So I, the I, problem is, you know, you think you don't, like you think you can't meld your styles when you're married. But what nobody tells you is you got to meld them even more when you're divorced. 
where it's just simply cruel to the child. Well, that makes sense. A lot of times in my office, I'll hear where dad is more permissive or mom's more strict or vice versa. Dad's more strict, mom's more permissive. So they do get a confusion as far as, you know, how to act and behave. Yeah. And the thing is, the amazing thing is that it goes all the way from how you organize your home to what your daily routines are to what your sleep schedules are, eating schedules. I mean, there's this whole almost developmental process of being a divorced parent that begins with setting a stage for success that means creating some sort of consistency in each home. If, if the child is you know, on a whatever, 2-5 schedule, and they're, um, they're, they need to have the same sleep patterns, they need to basically you know, have similar breakfast routines, they need to kind of shower in the same manner, uh, you know what I mean, morning or evening. You can change some things, but I would say get more consistent earlier and then change as the child feels secure. Don't be an adolescent and think, well, this is my house and I'm, I'm divorced from you because I don't want you to tell me what to do anymore, you know. Correct. And sometimes the adults go back to adolescent behavior, too, and partying and that kind of thing when they divorce. You know, it's like freedom. Yeah, you know, many people think, I, I wrote this in the first book, many people think a lot when they're having babies about the layette and the party, you know, whatever that, you know, party is that you have before you're having the baby, the shower. And they don't think about raising an 8 to 16-year-old. You know, and if you thought a little forward, you'd go, wow, my middle schooler and high schooler in a lot of ways is going to need me even more than my infant because I'm going to be training them for adulthood. So if I'm about to have a baby, I better be prepared to act like an adult. That's for sure. And they have no idea how they're role modeling behaviors. I mean, these adults, I see these people having sleepovers with other partners and I'm like, do you want your child to behave like that? I know. And you're role modeling this behavior. And we don't get any coursework in high school that prepares us for having children. Right. I mean, it should be mandatory that we have some sort of parenting class, but they don't offer it yet. I know. Now, have you heard of this site, unhookedbooks.com? No. Yeah, I love for divorced people. It's called Unhooked books.com oh, is that and it by has everything from everything on divorce parenting you know um everything it's i think it's run by megan hunter and i, I always her. don't you always love you know it's easy for us to have opinions and then parents are like okay fine i buy into that but then what should i do and then i'm like well here's bloom this has all the sentences here's this website here are some great books to read Here's unhooked books. It's nice to give resources and not, we're not trying to be judgmental. I think that one thing I got as I got older was a little more realistic. Like I kind of cut to the chase faster. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it is good to have those resources. And the, at the end of the, all my podcasts, I'll have resources and links and show notes that will offer these people. So it's easy access for them. Awesome. So anyway, so talk, let's talk more about your book, Bloom. So you talk about separating out skill sets in that book. What is that about? Yeah, you know, that's kind of my, my two things right now. I'm sure you have things that really fascinate you from a research perspective. One is scaffolding and separating out skill sets, and the other is using movement to talk. And so the, the basic 
simple concept. I'm just going to use the, the example of walking into a party. Okay. When you walk into, let's say you're walking into a cocktail party. The first thing you do as an adult is you read the room. Okay. This is Sarah Ward's term. You read the room and you say, well, you know, who's here, who's where, where's the food, where are the drinks, who will I go join? And then the next thing you do is you have a sequence. So that's called simultaneous processing. That's actually out of the Doss and Luria research. You simultaneously, I call it reading the landscape. Sarah Ward calls it reading the room. And you evaluate. You don't just go rushing in like a bowl. And then the next thing you do, Pam, and this is true for children, too. We can adapt this to a classroom. The next thing is you do is you, you, you have a task demand, and you understand that there are steps to that task. So let's say your task demand is walking up to a circle of people. And the, task, the first task demand is inhibit your speech. You might walk up and smile, but you don't walk in and say, hi, I'm Pam, you know, and start a story. You, you go, you inhibit, you listen. You see what they're talking about. You might nod in reflection saying you understand. And only a few minutes later when you have something appropriate to say, do you jump in? These are very important skills we've got to teach our children. How to read the environment and then how to decide what are the steps that I need to take in order to successfully execute this task demand. Right. And you wonder how many of these skills that we're losing through the social media, you know, learning body language and how do I enter a conversation, all of that. Yeah, I wonder, although I, I was told my daughter I might blog, I, I, I might, I got to think more and read more about it. But I kind of am starting to have a view that these kids who are texting all the time are actually really highly social. Oh, interesting. They're just social in a way that you and I aren't familiar with. Gotcha. And I used to talk a lot about social media and how you get, and I do still, but you get a dopamine burst whenever you open your email and you get your texts and, you know, basically that you, you get little squirts of neurotransmitters as you start to communicate. Right. But I, but I think, and maybe we'll talk a year when I have my thoughts formulated. I think there's something about this social medium that's actually making these children highly socially connected, but in a way that we don't fully understand yet. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> I remember I had a client once he was saying that he was texting this girl that they were going to go out on a date and they were talking, texting, blah, 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 blah. And he said then when he met her in person, he was like, didn't know what to say. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He felt a little flustered. It's like, okay, now we're face to face. What do I say now? Well, that probably is true that texting is less, yeah, maybe, yeah, less personal possibly. But yeah, that's interesting. So going back to your book now, how do we teach our children to approach tasks in a simultaneous then sequential manner? Well, the simultaneous is like, you know, the example of reading the room or reading the landscape, seeing that what would your camera see? What would your television see? What's the big picture? And then the simultaneous tasks are the order in which you'd have to do the tasks. And you can apply this to everything. Almost everything you do has a simultaneous piece. And some sequential pieces. Everything from, just think about making chocolate chip cookies. You know, you have to go into the kitchen and you got to read the room. you got to say, where's all this stuff? What, do, what, what is it that I need? Shall I put it all on the counter? And then you've got to go through the tasks of making the cookies. Homework is a great example. How many children go to th do their homework and they don't bring all their supplies? And then they're up and they're wasting time and they're running around. And if they've been efficient and read the table, okay, I see my 
my eraser and my pencils here, but my paper and my ruler's not. Let me go get those so I can simultaneously see everything that I need. So I've got my big picture painted. And then I can decide what to dive into. First, I'll dive into my math. Then I'll dive into my English. Um, this kind of teaches the brain to plan and preview and organize in a more efficient way. Ooh, I like that. So now you talk about fundy films. I've never heard of that. What is that? Yeah, so um, if you chose to, these are free films. And basically the, the theory that this is all built on is uh, it started with Luria and then it went to Doss and Brown and then Doss and Naglieri. And then these are basically cognitive educational scientists. And um, then there were some neuroscientists in Italy who said, you know what, we could teach the children how to do simultaneous and sequential processing if we showed these, them these little films. And so if you went to Google and you just typed in Fundi, F is in Frank, U-N-D-I, and then my last name, Kenny, K-E-N-N-E-Y, the films will pop up. Um, because when I went to Italy this July to see these people, it, you know, and what's fascinating is they spoke, um, I mean, I was in Spain. I keep saying Italy because I've been looking at Italian pictures this morning. Spain. Um, they spoke Spanish and Portuguese and a little English. And I had no idea that they didn't speak a lot of English because these are like neuroscientists. And I was like, this is really wild. I'm sitting with some well-known neuroscientists and we're basically using hand signals <laughs> <laughs> and smiling and nodding in order to get our point across. It was so fascinating. But anyway, they gave me the films. Um, I'm typing them into Google to make sure they pop up. Um, they gave me the films to make free to, to you know, the people that you and I talk with. Everybody. Everybody can see them. Yeah, so if you just write F-U-N-D-I, Kenny, K-E-N-N-E-Y, you'll see the films. Ooh, awesome. I'll have that on my show notes, too, so they can uh, have a quick link to it. Yeah, and kids like them. There's uh, one, two, three, four. There's five of them. Whoops. Another blank. <laughs> we got some music. <laughs> some entertainment. Well, gosh, Lynn, it's just been fabulous to talk to you. I had so much fun. I certainly appreciate it. Now, where can they find you? Oh, they just have to, you know, my blog has tons of stuff, and it's got the books there and everything if they desire. Um, my stuff is digital so that they can get it really quickly, but it's basically my name, L-Y-N-N-E-K-E-N-N-E-Y.com. All right. It's been so much fun. I could talk all day. Okay. Have a lovely day. I really enjoyed it, too. All right, Lynn. We'll see you. Okay. Thank you warmly. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed our show. And now you can understand a little more about how executive functioning works for all of our children. Please check out the links on my show notes at PamelaChambers.com to have quick access to the things we discussed with Dr. Lynn Kinney. Please keep listening to Smart Choices for a Happier Family Life. Love, peace, and let's talk. This is Pamela Chambers signing off. Thanks for listening to Smart Choices for a Happier Life at PamelaChambers.com. Wishes for you to have a blessed day. Wishes for you to have a blessed day.